as we continue to look at them one by one. As I said, uh, I, I think I was reflecting on it in the prayer There's, for some strange reason, although in some sense I understand it that... Uh, you, you know, there aren't numbers here, one, two, three, four, and so we have to break them up as seems to make sense to us, and for, for some reason, uh, certain traditions include the first and the second commandment as the first commandment. The whole thing is the first, and then they break up the tenth and two, which seems very forced. Uh, but as I'll argue, God is definitely, he is definitely commanding something different here in the second than the first. This is what he says. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. And let us pray together. Dear Lord, uh, we thank you for this commandment. We thank you for all of your law and all of your word. Uh, but we pray that as we uh, sit under the teaching of this one commandment, that you might uh, search and try us and that you might give us a, a deeper desire for that which you are commending to us here, as well as a hatred for that which you are forbidding. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I know many of you have the book and read the book, Knowing God. Let me just say to you before I dive into my sermon, if anything I say here this evening, or perhaps everything I say, if it seems controversial to you, I'm especially going to condemn the practice of the use of images of Jesus Christ, uh, I, would, I would encourage you to go back and read chapter 4, The Only True God of Knowing God. Uh, and he does a wonderful job of summarizing the Reformed understanding of the Second Commandment, going back to Calvin. Well, let me give you that understanding of the Second Commandment. The Second Commandment here has to do with the sin of idolatry, specifically those idols which are made. Of course, the prior command, you shall have no other gods before me, had to do with idols of the heart, worshipping another god rather than the true god, or having other gods before the one true god. Uh, which don't necessarily need to be deities. It could just be, as I said last time, anything that you love more than God. You break the first commandment, if, uh, if that's true. But here it has to do with the making of an image as an object of worship. And in fact, it differs from the first commandment in yet another way. It has to do, as Charles Hodge says, with the worship of the true God by images. In other words, it really deals with something completely different than the first. The first says no other gods. But this command uh, says, the second command, do not seek to portray the, tr the true God in order to worship him. Do not make any images of the true gods. Calvin answers the question of why anyone would want to do this. He says, in essence, that man is not content to worship God as a spiritual being, and so he's ever crafting forms to represent him. We can't see God, and so we make something to behold in order to help us in our worship. This is how Calvin puts it. He says, all idolaters were victims of the same illusion, not content with the spiritual knowledge of God. They thought that they could attain a surer knowledge by making images. And this is not unique to Israel. This is, he says, what everyone has in common who is an idolater. And that is exactly what we see in the incident of the golden calf. 
There Israel was not so much seeking new gods to worship, but rather they were seeking a visible form of the God who delivered them precisely so that they might worship him in the absence of Moses. If you go back and read verses one through five, you'll see this very clearly. But their error was twofold. One, they thought they could worship God in this way, that his divine essence could be represented. And two, they imagined that they were unable to do so without this assistance. That it was impossible to worship a God they could not see. And so they needed to make something. They needed something to lay their eyes upon. Again, this is evident if you go back and read the narrative, which we read earlier. Now, there's no doubt but that the same error prevails today. That men are still seeking some visible form by which to worship the one true God. Content to worship him only, let us say, they are prepared to obey the first commandment. They seek to do do so through that which can be seen, breaking the second. Or imagining that, as has been said through the the centuries, images are books of the uh, unlearned. It is supposed that pictorial forms of God are necessary instruction for those untrained in religion, especially young children. I'm especially aware of how children's Bibles do this, depicting uh, images of God sometimes, and especially of Jesus Christ. Well, we're all so so susceptible to this error. The error uh, being that children need to see what cannot be seen in order to understand it. That's the error. Or they need to see what cannot be seen in order to believe it and to worship it, or him, I should say. But you see, that's the very essence of idolatry. It is to assume that God cannot be known or believed or worshipped as a spiritual being unless he can be seen. Not content to walk by faith, we insist on sight. We must see something. Yes, but didn't you teach your children in the children's catechisms, that uh, catechism rather, that God is a spirit and doesn't have a body like men? And did you really think that they were so unspiritual that they couldn't grasp this single truth without transgressing it? But then you say, what about Jesus Christ? Was he not incarnate? Did he not appear to us in a visible form so that he could be seen? Of course, the answer is yes. But it's easy to see why even he cannot be represented in these books and in other ways, such as in movies. For we so easily forget that in his humanity, he was equally divine and that his humanity became the vehicle by which the glory of his divine person shone forth, which is precisely John's assertion in his prologue. Let me read that to you. John chapter one, verses Uh, Verses 14 and 18, having stated uh, in the first five verses his eternity and his essential glory is the word who was with God and who was God and through whom the world was made and the light that shines in the darkness. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. The act of the incarnation was the revelation of the glory of the word of God. Chapter 1, verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who's in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. And this is precisely, beloved, what pictorial representations of him can never convey. They can never convey what John beheld, namely his glory. Indeed, they greatly obscure and conceal it. I often wonder if so many false notions about Jesus prevail today simply because 
in the modern age we thought to represent him. And in representing him, we told a lie after a lie after a lie. Everyone who does this, everyone who seeks to represent Jesus pictorially in a book or in a movie is in reality just conveying his own ideas about Jesus. And what he is doing is erecting an idol in his stead. We, we also see many other ways this sort of thing creeps in. The command, as you know, mostly has to do with worship, the manner of our worship, as well as our conception of God as we do so. But man is always devising all kinds of ways and all kinds of images in order to satisfy his desire to see something, since he imagines he cannot worship what he cannot see. And so you have all sorts of images in worship. If you go uh, to, to different churches, you'll see this. That images simply abound in places of worship. They always have. Things which, uh, let us admit, God never ordained. And yet things which, it is said, are helps to worship. Uh, people will go so far as to say, we're not worshiping the images, you know. We're only using them to help us to worship the true God. And yet I hardly know what to say to such obvious self-deception. Though I do find Packer's comments on the psychology of images very helpful. He says, and this is from the chapter, which I commended to you earlier. Images falsify the truth of God in the minds of men. Psychologically, it is certain that if you habitually focus your thoughts on an image or picture of the one to whom you're going to pray, you will come to think of him and pray to him as the image represents him. Now, I take that to be obvious and self-evident. In other words, if you tell your children that that silly man in the children's Bible is actually Jesus, then they will believe you. And so when you tell them about Jesus, that is the image they will have in their mind. And so whether they realize it or mean to, they will actually come to worship the image itself when you tell them to worship and pray to Jesus. Calvin also helpfully points out that idolatry begins even before that, even before you ever thought to show a picture of uh, what is called Christ to your children. It begins, he says, in the minds. Consequently, Calvin says, the mind begets the idol and the hand brings it to birth. And so even trying to imagine what Jesus must have looked like is idolatry. But the whole problem here is that we are not capable of imagining what God is really like. Nor are we capable of imagining what it was like for the divine essence to exist in human form as it did in Jesus Christ. And so whatever we imagine about him other than what is revealed in his word is just our own imagination. And to bring that into existence in the form of an idol is actually to worship an imaginary God. And so I think the good old way of Presbyterianism is best. Worship which is free of images. Worship with plain white walls, not with the stained glass windows. An emphasis on spiritual, uh, the spiritual elements of worship. Again, no stained glass windows, you see, because these are images too. They tantalize the senses, but they do not convey the truth about God. And so we try to have worship which is as free of these things as we can. And we realize, going back to the books of the unlearned and the ignorant, that God's method of instructing the simple and the ignorant, even young children, is the same old method 
of teaching the word that God has always employed, along with the sacraments, and I might add the catechisms as well. Whoever, whoever gives himself to these will come to his full knowledge uh, of God, which a man is capable of possessing. And let me say this as well. If these simple means should fail to give us an impression of his glory, I mean the preaching and the reading of his word and so forth, well, in some sense, that is the point. It is through the weakness of preaching and the simple form of the sacraments that God's power shines forth, but not, you see, in a way that can be seen. And that is exactly the point. What is occurring when we read scripture and when we listen to sermons and when we come to the table and whenever we worship God truly, we are not beholding something that can be seen about God. And yet we are still learning spiritual truths. We are dealing with a God who is spiritual. It is a spiritual transaction and a spiritual apprehension of a God who is spiritual that is only possible for persons who are spiritual. And they who are spiritual themselves would not seek to know God or to find him or to worship him in any other way. And so God is saying in this command, in essence, that he as a spiritual being expects to be worshipped in a way that is spiritual and that he cannot stand to be represented by forms which do not convey the truth of his spiritual essence. He tells them later on in Deuteronomy that he did not appear to them on the mountain in a form to be seen for precisely this reason. For if he had, they would have immediately sought to fashion an image after the form they beheld. But even then, you see, they would have begun to degrade it and misrepresent it. And then through the subtlety of idolatry, they would have begun to worship the image rather than what it was supposed to represent. And so God simply says in the second commandment, no images. You may not fashion them. You may not worship them. They are not fit to convey my glory and my being. I hate them. I hate them to such a, such a degree that I will not fail to, to, uh, to punish those who commit this sin. Well, at the same time, you see, he tells us that the one who loves him and keeps his commandments is the one who keeps this commandment. Now, who could question the importance of this command once we realize that this was the cardinal sin of Israel? It was the first sin she committed uh, after the giving of the law. And it was the sin she committed over and over and over and over again throughout her life, as well as the sin, the cardinal sin from which God had delivered her. The cardinal sin, I mean, of the nations. The nations are guilty of idolatry. They're guilty, in other words, of false worship. And false worship is seen more than anything in its idolatry. In man's carnal desire for images which can be seen and thus worshipped. Again, nothing seems to be so difficult for man than to imagine he can worship a God he cannot see. And so we must see things fashion something for him to bow down to. And we see by the clear witness of scripture that there is no sin God hates more than this. And what is certain God is saying is that the destruction of families and of nations is sure to come by the single sin, the sin of idolatry. It is really amazing then that we do not take greater care to avoid it. Now, one thing we Reformed Presbyterians have always understood from this command 
is that it really has to do with all of worship. It's a commandment about worship. I remember when I was asked in my ordination exam uh, to give uh, a scripture proof for the doctrine of uh, the regulative principle of worship. And I said the second commandment, which is, of course, the correct answer. Regulative principle of worship means that our worship is to be scriptural. We aren't to just make it up. You see, that's exactly what God is saying here. Don't make it up. Don't fashion it in a way that seems to make sense to you. The only worship which really honors God is the worship which makes sense to him. God is saying in this commandment, worship is my realm. It belongs to me. It isn't something you can decide yourself in whatever manner you like. In the realm of bowing down, and whenever you are dealing with something so sacred as God himself and his worship, you have to seek direction from God himself, or else you'll not only fail to honor him, but you'll really dishonor him by every act of supposed worship you bring. You will seek to worship him by the very thing he hates, which I think we could agree is not very good worship. And so we've always understood, we being Reformed Presbyterians, that what God is really saying here is that only the worship which he commands is fit to express his own glory. And thus it becomes true worship of the true God. Another way to put this is that man left to himself is always seeking to bring God down to his level, which is exactly what we do when we fashion an image. A little idol to hold in our hand or to behold with our eyes and to worship. Yes, but true worship is something uh, which is the opposite, in fact. It doesn't bring God down to us, but it actually brings us up to him. It lifts man up and beyond himself and giving him a true conception of a God who is greater than anything he can find in this world, who is glorious and infinite and altogether beyond the grasp of man's puny powers of perception and imagination. The whole point of worship of the one true God is for man to grasp that the one thing he can never fully comprehend or fathom is God's infinite essence. And that is precisely once more what an image can never convey. And anything that fails to give us this impression is precisely the sin that is forbidden here. But having said all that, let's just look uh, for a few moments at the commandment itself. What is being said uh, specifically? And here we must follow our rules for interpretation. First, we must discern the purpose of the command. Why did God give it? Which we've seen is that God would not have us to think of him or seek to worship him, having thought of him by images. That is to say, by anything that is corporal. Anything that is fleshly or anything that we've fashioned ourselves. Worship should give us a sense once more that God is greater than this world. That he's not in any sense confined to it. And that everything you find in this world is but a faint shadow of his glory and infinite essence. So that's the purpose. Second, what is forbidden? And then after that, what is required? You remember, every command has something forbidden and something required, even though most of them come in to us in the form of a prohibition. Well, what is forbidden here, you see, very naturally is twofold. And this helps to confirm, I think, uh, as I've been saying, the good old reformed understanding of the second commandment. It is not simply you shall not bow down, but actually, as I say, it's twofold. The first is you shall not make. 
Even to make an idol is idolatry. Now it's clear by the second prohibition here, you shall not bow down to what is made, that not all forms of making are forbidden. I can't even imagine what that would look like. God isn't saying that you can't ever make anything. But when he says you shall not make, which is a prohibition, he is, the for, he is forbidding the making of images for the purposes of worship, for the purpose of, of bowing down and serving. And any attempt, as we've seen, to visibly represent the divine essence in physical form, fashioned with human hands, is what is forbidden. Again, suppose you say there are only helps, there are helps to worship, there are helps to instruction in the home. Well, aside from the absurdity and dishonesty of such claims, we ought to see from the standpoint of the commandment itself that they are forbidden. You shall not make. Do not fashion for yourself any form, any visible representation of the living God, period. That ought to be enough for us. One of the chief dangers of making idols, you know, as we read in Scripture, is that you become like them. Those who fashion them beget not only a false religion, but a false religious consciousness. And so the one who makes them cannot avoid being corrupted by them. Do not even make them. But then second, you shall not bow down or serve them, which is really the essence here. Again, we're dealing with worship, the acceptable forms of worship and the forbidden forms of worship. Any form of worship that involves images made with human hands is precisely the sin which God is forbidding here. And I think the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, question and answer 51, puts this as well as anyone ever did. It sums up the commandment in a way that is very memorable. It says, what is forbidden in the second commandment? Answer, the second commandment forbiddeth the worshiping of God by images or any other way not appointed in his word. Forbids the worshiping of God by images or any other way not appointed in his word. Well, that's what's forbidden. But then what is required? Again, the Shorter Catechism is a help to us when it says, and this is implied, uh, the commandment comes to us as a prohibition, but it's also requiring something. What is required in the second commandment? The second commandment requireth the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God hath appointed in his word. What is required, as we've clearly seen, is scriptural worship, and worship that is spiritual, spiritual and scriptural worship, such as is found in his word, worship, worshiping the true God in spirit and in truth, as Jesus says in John chapter four. And the reason is because our commitment in worship is to finding God where he may indeed be found. He may not be found in an image again that doesn't accurately represent him. It doesn't convey the truth about him. Not any image anyone ever made. You will not find the truth about God in Mel Gibson's depiction of Jesus Christ in the movie The Passion of the Christ. What you'll find is what he thought about him. No, but in the Gospels, that's where you'll find him. In the whole and the entirety of Scripture, you'll find him there. And so let us have this as our commitment in seeking to know God and to comprehend about him what can be known by us so that we might worship him truly. Let us go to him only 
where he may be found, which is, as I say, in his word. But where else? Well, also in heaven. You recognize God as a spiritual being. So go to him where he may be found. In other words, prayer. Prayer is an appropriate expression of what God is commanding and requiring of us in the second commandment. It's a spiritual transaction with a God who is spiritual. So long as you're praying, your act of praying doesn't involve images, though we know often it does in other traditions. But primarily, where can a God who cannot be seen be found? Well, we know the answer is in Jesus Christ, who is the revelation of God in the flesh. We already saw that in John chapter 1. His whole purpose of coming to the world or into the world was to reveal to us a God we could not see. No one has ever seen him until Jesus Christ came in the flesh. He, as we read in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, the true image of God for man to behold and to worship. He is the exact representation of the divine essence because he is himself God. In him we behold God in the flesh. And in doing so, to behold God in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, you see, this is eminently an act of worship. We ought to bow down and serve him. Indeed, to do anything less is to fail to comprehend what we have in Jesus, which is God in the flesh. God revealed to man. But again, in this, it would be a complete failure to grasp the glory of his person in the flesh as revealed in the Gospels, to try to represent it pictorially or in any other way. For then we would distort the very glory he reveals and thus conceal it. Packer, again, is very helpful when he says the problem with images, which includes images of Christ, is twofold. First, he says, they obscure God's glory rather than reveal it. Every image does so. Second, he says, they mislead us because they deal in falsehoods. Again, Every image does so. Yes, but there are no falsehoods about Jesus in the New Testament. Not a single one. Everything there said about him is true. And the whole point of the New Testament is to reveal him to us so that we might believe him. And believing in him have life in his name. And thus, we might bow down and serve and worship him as the living and the true God. But then... Coming back to our special rules of interpretation, there's one last thing to do. We also find this in the catechisms, but we find it in the commandments as well. And that is, what are the special reasons assigned to this commandment? And we find that here when the Lord says, shall not make, you shall not bow down. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. There is the special reasons attached to it. You see, what the Lord is appealing to is his jealousy. He's a jealous God. And if there's one thing God is jealous to maintain above all else, it is his own glory. And if there is a second, it is that he would retain his glory among his people. God desires to be worshipped. It's the one thing he's looking for all along, all throughout scripture and all throughout history, a people to worship him. And in this, he will not give his glory to another and he will not suffer that any should do so and go unpunished. God will not tolerate false worship. It's something, again, which he declares he hates and we ought to hate it, too. But again, the whole essence of idolatry is seen in this very thing that it robs God of his glory and gives it to another. 
and that it seeks to convey his glory in ways that are incapable of doing so. And then imagining that such things actually have, we worship them rather than him. Let us see that God is is zealous for his worship, beloved. God is zealous for his worship. And it behooves us to recognize this and to have a zeal for his worship ourselves. So we ought to heed the warning. To realize that a man cannot engage in this sort of sin and go unpunished. God will not turn a blind eye to the idolater. No, he says. And listen well. He'll not only visit you, but he'll visit your children. And he'll visit their children and then their children. This is a sin which I have described as one which not only brings down families, but nations. False worship. And those who engage in false worship set their hearts and their lives against God. He will set his heart against them. He describes these people as those who hate him. And what God is in essence saying, if you think of it, is those who hate me, I will hate. And I will set my face against those who set their face towards idols. The God who is infinite, immortal, invisible. Imagine that he should be worshipped by images. But look at the other side. And notice his mercy is always greater than his justice. I'm engaging in a little bit of hyperbole when I say this. But do you notice the imbalance here? He says to the fourth generation of those who hate me. But to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You see, his blessings are always greater than his curses. Look how blessed the man is who keeps this commandment. He is regarded by the Lord as one who loves him and keeps his commandments. A blessing that he brings not only to himself, but to his family and to his nation. And not only in this life, but in the next. There's no way God is saying to ignore this command without being cursed. It's the most foolish thing you could ever do. To engage in a little bit of idolatry and think that God won't mind. There's no way to do it without experiencing the vengeance of the Lord. God is warning us here in the sternest possible way. He will avenge his glory on those who those who transgress it. But there is also, he says, no way to keep it and seek to commune with a God who is spiritual without being blessed, experiencing his mercy. I find it especially interesting that God uses the word mercy here. Showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. He reminds us that he doesn't deal with us by strict justice. Even the one who seeks to keep this law and who does is still, we know, a transgressor. Even in seeking to keep it, we're breaking it all the time. And so the blessing he receives and which is promised to him is not one of merit. He isn't being rewarded for his obedience as his due. No, God promises him mercy, because that is exactly, if you think of it, what he needs. Even in his desire to worship God in spirit and in truth, he depends upon mercy all the time. He's now fallen. He's a sinner. Even the best saints taken up with the best and the purest worship are still sinners. And as I say, they're breaking this commandment all the time. They still need mercy for themselves and for their children. Think of your children who are worshiping with you. The commandment forces you to do so. Well, they, like you, are sinners too. And thank God that what 
he promises here for the one who truly seeks to worship him in the way that he desires to be worshipped. And in those means whereby he may be found is mercy. The man who does this will not only find God. Learning about him all that we are meant to learn. His spiritual lessons. But he will find mercy. And thus his worship of God will be undergirded by something that can really support him. For if man who is a sinner in seeking God actually finds him. What is to keep him from being terrified by his justice? Again, seeing that we are sinners, the answer is mercy. That God will not deal with us according to what our sin deserves. Though we might notice that those who worship him by idols, those, in other words, he says, who hate him, have no such assurance from God. There is no promise of mercy for them. But those who shun idolatry and those who seek to worship the true and the spiritual God by spiritual means... To him is promised mercy. And having found it, he will, he will be prepared more than ever to keep this commandment. To worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And so having said all of that, let me close simply by reading the entire commandment again. What is called the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the, of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Amen. Let us close out our worship now, singing as our final hymn of the month, a cappella, hymn number